Welcome to the Maluli Asset Management Podcast. This is episode number 222. Wasn't there a Route 222 that we used to take out to York, Pennsylvania? Yeah, yeah, that runs through uh, Lancaster, I think. Right. And I know that when I was growing up, I used to watch a TV show called Room 222, which was about Walt Whitman High School, a fake high school in Los Angeles. Okay. But that was like 1970, 71, 72. Before my time. Well, a little before your time. Safe to say. Yeah. So welcome to episode 222. Uh, Brendan has some somewhat breaking news. Uh, Not not, not breaking, but uh, my indicator for whether or not like a market event has reached the mainstream is to to ask my girlfriend if she has heard anything. So yesterday I asked her if she heard anything about Facebook, and she said yes. So obviously... Breaking the, news. Yeah, everybody has heard at this point that, that Facebook went down 19% yesterday off of... Bad. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Facebook goes down? Right, exactly, yeah. I, th- I thought we were just signing up for the gains, sir. <laughs> <laughs> what's What's that all about? I don't know. So I thought, you know, by buying some of these FANG stocks, you know, Facebook, Amazon, Apple, Netflix, Google, these things only go up. That's what it seemed like for the last couple of years, at least. But I mean, I think with all of these stocks, you can look back through their history and see that they've had events like this, maybe not exactly of this magnitude, but like, you know, 10% drops or like bear markets that individual names have experienced over the course of the years uh, on their own, like like not not alongside the market. Just off the top of my head, I'm remembering, was it Apple. 2013 where the market went up like 30% and Apple went down. went down. So, I mean, this is kind of what you're signing up for when you try to pick stocks and, and not only pick stocks, but pick like big winners or what, you know, so you're trying to ride the wave of these big, these big names. And if so, you think you're not signing up for this, I think you're kind of delusional. So Brendan, when we go online and we see if you had invested $10,000 X number of years ago in pick a stock today you'd be worth you know a billion dollars yeah i mean these things don't go up in straight lines no and like look i mean if you bought facebook like a couple of years ago you're probably still up very nicely on it but it's it's never going to feel good to look and see a name that you own down 20 percent in a day more or less a a day-long bear market like that that would be like it's like 1987 for facebook yesterday basically right that's that's what we saw. So like people people freak out over stuff like that. I guess I mean there's going to be emotions attached to it, but if if you thought that that wasn't within the realm of possibilities, I think that individual stocks are probably not for you. And I think that that's most likely the case for almost all investors out there. Like can you really deal with what happened? Like if you're heading for the hills after yesterday, are you really cut out to to like pick stocks? You're on the wrong bus. Yeah. That's basically it. You know, this bus is going to Cleveland. You know, you with us or not? <laughs> yeah. So I think uh, we can say friend of the show, Michael Batnick, uh, did a post about Disney same way. Right? Yeah, and and Michael has has written about this before with I think all of the Fang names making almost this exact point that like you are signing up for the idea or the hope of big upside. You want to see that wave continue that has drawn your attention to a name like this, but you are also signing up for like excruciating downside moves. So like the whole invest $10,000 meme is 
ridiculous because most people don't have the stomach to invest in an individual name and see it get cut in half or, or down 20% in a day. Like if you're going to sell based off of news like that, it's, it's, it's not for you to, to be picking companies like this. And that's not a knock on you. I don't think it's for many people. No, I just don't. But Michael wrote about Disney in his post and some really great stats. So Disney since 1970 is up 19,500%. That sounds like an eye-popping number. Yeah, I mean, it's, and the market, Michael had perspective on what the market has done over that time frame, and it's not, it's it's beaten the market over that time frame, but, like, the market has also gone up a ton. So, like, this is, you know, a winner, but, like, that makes it seem right. ridiculous. No, it's done very well. There have also been periods of time where Disney laid an egg. Yes. I've, so, I've seen it. So... Uh, Disney has lost over that time frame has lost 10% in a day over 11 times. It has had 13 bear markets over those 48 years, uh, while the S&P has had four. So not all of these were in conjunction with big market declines. You you had to be willing to see just your stock getting chopped in half or down 20% or more, while the market did nothing, or maybe was down a couple percent or up, like what we talked about with Apple before. Can right. can you handle that? And and he also looked at like the years that exist between uh, new highs in a stock like Disney, and and we're not just talking years. Like there were like decade long stretches. Oh yeah, where this stock was below the highs from wherever it had drawn down down uh, drawn down from earlier. So. So they, they don't give out awards like they do for baseball players when they come back from a serious injury. But I distinctly remember Disney being the comeback stock of the year in 1984 and 1989 and 1996. So I've already seen this now a couple of times through my career where this stock has been the comeback stock of the year because they didn't do anything for a year or two before that. And that's not a knock on Disney. Like Michael wrapped up his post by saying you could, he like rattled off like five or six other like huge name stocks that you could do this with over the years. So it's not to say like Disney hasn't been a good investment or that like good stocks like don't take decade long breaks between their peaks. Like they do and it's fine. That's right. But saying that you're okay with that and then living through it in reality are, are two very different things and I think a lot of people just give lip service to the idea that they're long term and that they're going to they're going to be there to recognize these big long term gains that these companies see you see like the nice smooth mountain chart that goes up and to the right but I don't think many people are cut out for picking individual companies and having like significant amounts of money tied right. up in them I don't <laughs> yeah as long as we're talking about the mountain range chart understand that sometimes the mountain range gets smoothed out because you're looking at 20 years compressed into an image that's a half of a screen mm-hmm. sure it's going to look smooth it took out all the bumps you know all the years where it was flat or down Tom Maluli is an investment advisor representative with Maluli Asset Management. All opinions expressed by Tom and his podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Maluli Asset Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of Maluli Asset Management may maintain positions in securities discussed in this podcast. Hey, two other things relate, somewhat related to that. Two other articles that we picked off of uh, MarketWatch. Fate of the stock market for 2018 could rest on the next five days. It kind of sounds like 
the Mets plans to tear down or rebuild or to go for it, like it all depends on the next couple of days. That's hocus pocus. Well, so what the article was talking about was um, some research from Bespoke Group. And and so since 1928, there have been 12 times where the S&P was positive in April, May, June, July. And all of those years, it was positive for the rest of the year. So like, let's break that down for a second. Like we're talking about a 12, 12 being our sample size here. And they, they obviously know this. It's, it's interesting to look at data this way. And it reminds me of like market seasonality. The, my take on that is, is that like the data is correct. Like they're not making it up. It is what it is. But, but like, what are you supposed to do about it? Yeah. Is this anything more than an interesting coincidence? Interesting, but not actionable. So when, when you look at like a, a market anomaly, like something like, like value stocks or momentum stocks, you want to see like two things and you want to see it work across all countries and and different types of uh, investments. So two things that you're looking for to explain things that exist like that are explanations for why they occur. There has to be a reason. Some people posit that things like value and momentum give you excess returns over time, or they have, at least in the past, because you're taking on more risk than the market, which is probably true in some sense. And then there's also the explanation of it being like a behavioral thing. So like people throw the baby out with the bathwater with value stocks and and over extrapolate to the downside and momentum is almost the exact opposite of that. So there are these these working explanations that probably both contribute alongside maybe other factors too to these things being real uh, or at least (laughs) the idea that they have been real in the past. But things like market seasonality or like months being positive, like what possible explanation is there causation there or is it just like correlation yeah i guess is my point and we we wrestle with this all the time primarily because we get questions about this hey we heard that you know uh selling may and go away actually works well sometimes sometimes it does right until it doesn't I well mean, that's like- kind of the same thing you know you'll be watching a, a baseball game and it'll say you know the dodgers when they're ahead in the eighth inning they're, they're 89 and 0 until today yeah, you know, until it doesn't matter. It just it's not something I would hang my hat on. I don't have any problem reading research like this cuz I think it's interesting, but it's interesting to, to say it's, that it's it's, mo- it's nothing more. To say that it's something you should like adjust your portfolio or make investment decisions based off of, Holy I think is moly, that's, insane. That's a bad plan. Yeah. So along the same lines, another article that we saw in Market Watch, how to predict the next stock market downturn. For real? Uh, they talked about relying on the VIX, and they also talked about the inverted yield curve as an indicator. I don't know about you, but I am so tired of hearing about the inverted yield curve and the 210 spread because I don't know if this is really an accurate indicator. I, I don't know how many indicators are do, really? we know, do we know if any indicators are accurate indicators? No, it's a confluence of a lot of different things all happening at the same time. Even with the charts that we use and our own indicators, one indicator going off doesn't mean that there's a problem. When you start to see multiple indicators going off or going in the same direction together, you might want to pay attention. Yeah, but it doesn't but even, necessarily mean that something's going Even that going is down. a maybe. Right. So like, yeah, I, I think 
more generally, I I don't like articles that purport to have like the answers to the test. As but, if as if you could right. read a Market Watch article and and obtain the answer to how to get upside without downside. Right. Because and that's we, that's basically what every indicator out there is and explicitly telling you there that they have whether they say it outright or not is that we have we have the answers to the test so that you can time the market and not have to deal with the negative impact of being invested in stocks. So we can find an article like that usually a couple every week on different websites. And we'd be happy to tell you what websites if you reach out to us. Or we should make them subscribe to our newsletter. I'm just kidding. <laughs> but the, the thirst for these these stories about this indicator has nailed you know the last X number of bear markets or recessions or whatever it may be, whether it's economic based on charts or fundamentals, I don't know. But people crave this stuff despite probably understanding at some level that it's ridiculous and that if somebody could do that, then investing would be like super, there would be no risk to investing then. And why would we earn money right. if we could just jump in and out of stocks every time they yeah. were going to take a dive? Like that, yeah. that's not how it works. But I, I just want to revisit this uh, 210 spread business. This just baffles me that we're even having this conversation today. Brendan's been in the meetings with clients when I've said this, so he's already smirking because he knows what's coming. The numbers on fixed income investments have been so small the last few years, you need a microscope to see them. When we've had an inverted yield curve or the 210 spread goes to zero or a negative number, in the past, it's been when interest rates are 5 and 6% or higher. I mean, we're dealing with numbers that are in the twos. There's no precedent for this. So to just throw a blanket over it and say, you know, when we see the 210 spread go to zero or go negative, that's a clear sign that there's going to be a recession. Really? Is that true? I think any data that purports to foresee recessions is ridiculous because you can't, by the definition of a recession, you cannot know that you're in it until at least six, six months, months after it has already begun. So to say any kind of group of economic indicators are going to tell us before, like, if we knew we were going to go into a recession, then like, wouldn't we do something about it? So we've talked about Facebook. I think it's only fair that we talk about Twitter. So Twitter down today, they are continuing to purge the fake accounts that are on Twitter. Twitter's actually doing something good for the long-term health of their business, stock selling off. Right. Like you could have the answers to the test and it wouldn't matter. Right. Like like you could have the GDP numbers that came out this morning and you probably would have gotten the direct, like the market's flat today. Right. This is Friday. Like, you know what I mean? Like you could have had the numbers, but you don't know how everybody's going to react to them. And I think it's kind of the same when you're getting earnings numbers uh, for the second quarter from Facebook or whatever. Like you could you could look at those numbers and interpret them differently than the person sitting next to you and the person sitting next to them on the other side. And that's kind of what makes a market. So like we can we can all believe what we want about the direction a stock or an industry is headed. But if more people disagree with us than agree with us, then like we're wrong, at least in the short term. I don't know. We're always looking for the answers to the test. But realistically, it's, it's impossible to have them because so much of what we see on a day to day basis is based off of the opinions of people. Right. And that's it. Hey, one thing that I think we do need to touch on today, there's um, Wells Fargo has been in the doghouse now for a long time 
for some of their business practices. Some of the whistleblowers now on the wealth management side are producing correspondence that said that uh, employees of the firm were paid extra compensation or given some kind of incentive to push certain products. I can't believe that we're talking about this in 2018. I thought all this stuff, I mean, it's naive to hear, but I, or to say, but I, I thought all this stuff went away over the last 10 or 15 years, but it still goes on. So lofty sales goals were at the heart of the scandal at Wells Fargo Retail Bank. Incentives also appear to be at the root of issues under investigation within its wealth management business. Four advisors in Arizona sent a letter to the Justice Department and the SEC detailing what they said were longstanding problems with the banks dealing with wealth management customers. In January, two advisors sent a formal complaint to the SEC alleging similar problems. They cited goals for product sales that led employees to push customers into products that generated more fees or to move client assets between different products or platforms to generate more revenue and bigger bonuses. Right. So we don't need a fiduciary rule, right? Apparently not. People are going to do what they're paid to do. So when you put somebody in a position where they're they're paid to sell a specific product or push some kind of ideology in terms of how they believe you should invest that's that's what they're going to do right i mean they're going to lose the it's between losing their job or doing it and maybe not feeling great about it but on the uh, i don't even know like do people a lot of people would probably trust their employer in this sense maybe not at wells fargo after all the stuff that's come out over the years but when you work for a company and and they tell you what your job is i mean you're going to do your job i don't know maybe it's a surprise to some of these people that Wells Fargo has been telling them to do the wrong stuff now. And this isn't unique to them, I don't think. I was just going to go there. I, I don't think Wells Fargo is the only player. You know, They're, they're not the only one in the industry that, that does this. I worked for a firm that had a different fee schedule if you sold proprietary products. That was, however, 25 years ago. I'm sure it probably still exists today, though. It's not like that, that firm, which will remain remain nameless is like conflict free now today that's they're doing the same stuff still i mean that's that's basically the the crux of like the fiduciary rule being struck down is that firms don't want to get rid of practices like this where they incentivize to sell products that they earn more profit on they're very profitable right that's so that's that's why we don't have a fiduciary rule because people want to continue doing stuff like this i think it would be fairer if we could have everybody disclose everything in black and white, easy to read, you know, in, in some kind of way to show people this uh, suggestion, this recommendation over here is going to cost this much per year. This suggestion over here, which might be better, is going to cost a little more. It's going to be over here. This is what it's going to cost. I don't think there's anything wrong with it. If you can justify a, a good reason for owning it, I don't see anything wrong with it. However, if it becomes a practice where, you know, everybody's getting strawberry, you know, because we're paid more for strawberry, well, then I think they ought to disclose that too. But I just think the person on the other end receiving the advice to do stuff like this should be aware of why they're being told that over other options. And if they decide, because our business is very personal in nature, if they like the person who is selling them 
proprietary products because that's the firm they work for and they still choose to do it after that, then that's great. Like we shouldn't get rid of their choice to do business that way if they if they want to, but it should have to be transparent and I'm not sure that it is. All right, that's going to wrap up episode number 222. Thanks for listening to the Maluli Asset Management Podcast and we will catch up with you on the next episode. 